Hi, everyone. Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor and filmmaker based in Seattle, Washington, and still a Jew. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Harry. How are you doing, Harry? I'm doing pretty well, Daniel. As always, I'm Harry Adamsasser, and uh, you know the drill at this point. I'm a Jew, studied film. Uh, hopefully that's familiar. I'll find another clever way to say that next week. But um, welcome back to our podcast. And this is a special, it's a special episode because Daniel, this is the first time in, you know, probably five, six episodes that it's just the two of us again. It's just the two of us recording, talking about a movie we love. That's it, man. We've, we've had our matzah, you know, for uh, transparency's sake. This is just after Passover. So we've had our matzah. We've experienced freedom. We're free Jews. And we're here today to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, Licorice Pizza, starring Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman, son of the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, Daniel, yes, it's just Harry. the two of us. And mm -hmm. normally you take the lead on doing some of the interviews with some of our guests. But, you know, this is a movie I was very excited to watch with you and to hear your thoughts on. So I wanted to ask you some questions, if I may. Just uh, sure. Get, get, I guess, share with me and the audience just a little bit more of your background and, you know, why I thought this was a particularly special film for you. So I'll, I'll just get it out there. I know you grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and mm -hmm. this is certainly a Valley movie. I remember, yep. you know, one of the, I remember we had an early conversation about it when the trailer came out and you were excited and, you know, this was going to speak to you. So I guess just like, I wanted to ask about, you know, what was that like growing up in the Valley, growing up, you know, Hollywood movies, what was your relationship with that? And, uh, and hopefully we can, you know, learn from that a little bit about your past and transition that into talking about the movie. So what, what was that like for, you know, a young Daniel growing up in the Valley? When you grow up someplace, you don't know anything different, right? You think that's like how everyone grows up. And so like, sometimes when I would drive over Laurel Canyon, to go to school in like high school, you'd see like an old mansion and you'd be like, oh, that's where Houdini lived or that's where the Red Hot Chili Peppers recorded their album. And you're like, oh, yeah, sure. every, everyone does that. We would oftentimes see like Jay Leno drive over the hill to go to Burbank from where he lived. And every day, almost every day, it would be a different old car. Like he has a garage of cars. And so every day it'd be an old like 1920s weird car. And you'd, you'd see him speeding by with this sort of shock of gray hair. And you'd see him just kind of like driving around and stuff. And so I assumed that that's, you know, that was my reality. But also just being surrounded by people as I grew up and kind of went to film school. You're surrounded by people who want to get in the industry. And a lot of that in the film, I feel like our protagonist, Gary Valentine, is, you know, a young kid actor. And he's kind of steeped in sort of that everyone's trying to get in and make it and audition for commercials. And so, like, I heard so much of that in college and a lot of that sort of sounded familiar. You know, P.T. Anderson grew up in the Valley. He's the director of the film. And I went to Cal State Northridge, which was in the San Fernando Valley. And a lot of his films were filmed you know, in locations in Northridge, you know, locations uh, for Punch Drunk Love and Magnolia and Boogie Nights. Like every time I would be going to and from class, I would see like the mattress store from Magnolia or the donut shop from Boogie Nights or the 99 cent store where Adam Sandler goes in and gets his his pudding cups to get mileage and things like that. And so he was sort of like a local hero for us Valley kids. And I just really enjoyed his movies. So seeing this and seeing how he paid homage to the Valley, although it was a time that I was not aware of because it was, it, you know, it took place in 74. I still really enjoyed the sort of valleyness of it. And uh, for context, uh, P.T. Anderson uh, was taught by the Heim sisters mom uh, for art class. 
And later, you know, uh, P.T. Anderson went on to direct a lot of Haim's music videos. So they have like a long history of, of working together. And in all of the Haim videos, they also grew up in the valley, but all of their videos, a lot of them take place on Ventura Boulevard. They're walking around on Ventura Boulevard, things like that, and playing in clubs in the valley and things like that. Overall, this is a huge win for the 818, which is the area code. Shout out to the 818. Exactly. So we're just very proud. We don't often get as much shine as like places like New York. You know, everyone watches New York movies and it's like played out at this point. So when there's a Valley movie, you know, we've had Clueless from a long time ago. But now that we have this one, it's, you know, we'll take our wins when we can get them. Yeah, there, there was definitely some Valley representation in this film. I would argue it's it's a big character in the movie itself. So I wanted to ask you, and spoiler alert for, you know, later in the movie, something that hopefully if you've seen the movie, you've figured out. And hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you expected this, but there actually are some Jewish characters in the movie. You know, one of our leads is actually Jewish. And I wanted to ask you, Daniel, as a Jew growing up in the Valley, you mentioned that, you know, you, you didn't grow up in the exact same era as the movie, but did you see yourself on screen a little bit? Were there scenes where you were like, and we can get into the specific scenes when we actually discuss the movie, but just to tease it out a little bit, were there moments where you said, yeah, that feels like my childhood a little bit? Well, I mean, I never like sold waterbeds per se, and I never, I never started an arcade business. No, I didn't do that. I was never like a entrepreneurial uh, kid like Gary, you know, I, I had jobs, you know, working at like a fabric store when I was six, 16. And I remember like putzing around and shooting music videos in the back alleys in North Hollywood. But I'm not, I'm trying to think of like which of his friends, I definitely had a group of friends when I was in like the sub 18 category, like a group of friends who we just did like hijinks with. I think as all people do, you have your crew of people. Gary had his, his crew, his little brother, and then his little brother's friends and his friends. And they later became his like business partners, making phone calls and things like that. But not exactly. You know, I think I'm more of a behind the scenes kind of person as an editor. I'm not the Gary Valentine type where I'm like charming people off their feet and trying to impress casting directors. That's not really my thing. You know, don't get me wrong. I love the attention, but I'm I prefer to be sort of in the editing bay instead of on in front of the camera. Yeah. So um, with that, I think we should jump into the actual discussion of the movie, maybe go through it beat by beat and uh, see how Jewish licorice pizza is. Absolutely. That sounds great. I mean, before we get too far, you know, I feel like I need to interview you now and sort of you grew up. Tell us where you grew up, Harry. I was going to say when we do our like northern New Jersey movie, like, sure, I'll give you my entire childhood. But right. I wasn't really watching this movie that, you know, showcased, you know, the the, the San Fernando Valley about two and a half decades before I was born. I, I didn't really feel so so much relatability there. I wasn't really quite sure what a waterbed mm. was until about halfway through the film. So are you, are you for real? You, you did not know that that thing existed. I'd heard of it. I'd like seen it. Like there, okay. there's like a, there's a, there's an X-Men movie where I think like, you know, days of future past, you know, just another, uh -huh. just to shatter another film where I think sure. they like flashback to the seventies and like Wolverine kind of wakes up in a waterbed. So I was familiar with uh, it, but got it. Okay. I never saw the appeal of it until this movie somewhat convinced me. I'm not going to you know right. replace my mattresses anytime soon, but it was interesting yeah. to see the way he marketed it. I have a very vivid memory of going to a friend's house. Shout out to my friend, Jonathan Solomon, uh, his older brother. I think it was either Elliot or Victor. It's always like older brothers. So they're at they're at an age where, you know, they do the cool things. They introduce you to like cool music and cool movies and things like that. And so he had a waterbed uh, in his room. And I remember going into his room and trying out his waterbed and just kind of like sitting on it and just kind of like floating around. And it was 
you know, something I only need to try once. Like I'm fine with my mattress now. Yeah. Um, but I think it was very of the time. That's my understanding of it. Um, why don't you hit us with that IMDB summary? I definitely can do that. This is a, uh, a short and sweet one, but I actually think it captures the movie kind of well. It reads the story of Alana Kane and Gary Valentine growing up, running around and going through the treacherous navigation of first love in the San Fernando Valley, 1973. Harry, thank you so much for that lovely IMDb summary. Before we dive into the movie, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with Licorice Pizza. Welcome back, listeners, and uh, we'll get started by running through the plot a little bit. So, Daniel, why don't you get us started? How does the movie open up? So, like most Paul Thomas Anderson movies, it gets started with a beautiful, what's called a one like a one-take shot where we're just kind of like roaming through the scene, kind of getting introduced to our characters, similar to like Boogie Nights where they like come in off of a crane into the club. So, here... Now we start at a high school or maybe it's an elementary school because I guess he's 15. So we meet our, we meet our main character, Gary Valentine, who is 15 years old. And we see Alana Haim or Alana Kane walk by and she's giving out combs and mirrors to, for people to sort of touch up their hair. And instantly he like charms her. He turns right, on the charm it's, right it's away. It's class picture day, right? It is class picture day. Uh, and it is, you know, everyone needs to look their finest. He's dressed up fairly nice for a for a kid in the 70s, you know, buttoned up shirt, nice slacks, things like that. And instantly he's just charming her. And we're kind of going through the line and then going through the picture part. And they're just talking to each other. She doesn't give him the time of day initially, kind of brushes him off. And he doesn't take that as a no. He just kind of like is playful and coyly kind of flirting with her. And the conversation is still going as they are taking their picture. So he's charming her quite a bit. And eventually he's broken down her resistance. And she eventually reluctantly agrees to go out with him for dinner at his local bar called the Tale of the Cock. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think right away it's kind of interesting seeing this very like confident kid and you know, sort of flirting with someone who early on we know is 25 years old and she's working at a uh, photography studio as an assistant. And so, I don't know, what did you make of the whole, you know, it develops quite a bit, you know, he's a very mature 15 and she's kind of an immature 25 year old, but you know, what did you think of that whole relationship as it sort of progressed through the film? Yeah, I I think, you know, exactly what you said was where I was going to go with this, that they kind of outlined from the beginning kind of their social stature. Like there's this clear power discrepancy where she's like a chaperone kind of thing, or she's just part of the staff helping with these, you know, kids. Cause you're, like you said, they're 15 years old and he's like this, you know, younger, younger kid, but already their dynamic is outlined. Like he's very suave, confident, mature is almost like come into himself as like, you know, and like an adult, like suave person, like inviting you, you know, out to dinner and, you kind of get the impression already from her character that she's a little bit less, less mature. Like she's, like you said, you know, she's acting sort of young for his age. He's kind of acting old for his age. And, you know, their relationship kind of begins as this coalescence of like meeting in the middle, you know, he's the one who has to like invite her out and she's the one who's like a little petty and like, you know, hesitant about it. And then ultimately does agree to meet him there. And it's the, and I think you also get a really big, you know, from when they're seen in the diner, like in the dinner, you get the sense that he's like a real, you know, player and you see the smooth talking and you see like this facade that he's kind of put up around her. And, you know, I, I think that 
the sort of entrepreneurial spirit that he has throughout the rest of the movie and the sort of, you know, the way that he kind of tries to pull all these schemes throughout the rest of it. it it's all very clearly set up, I think, you know, in that first scene with them. You know, we sort of see, I think she's still, even after the initial dinner that they go out with, she's not entirely convinced. And you said that, you know, he sort of sets up this I'm more dominant thing. And then, you know, he needs a ride somewhere. So he calls her or he needs a chaperone on a trip. He's not able to go on a trip exactly. to New York to do some sort of like uh, talk show appearance. So then he asks Alana. Alana is able to escort him on this trip as a chaperone to fly to New York. It's at that point that he sort of shows off a little bit. And he walks by her in the hall and he says, just keep an eye out. I'm going to do a little joke just for you. So he does his whole musical number with a part. I guess it's part of a movie that he was in. And he does this this song and dance number. And he smacks the old lady with a pillow. And I guess he's like kind of like winking at her. And Alana Himes in the audience kind of like, I'm the chaperone. I'm the chaperone. Like she's trying to elevate her own status as like being a chaperone. Everyone's like, shut up, just be quiet. Listen to the, you know, but I think it's, it's very interesting. The whole, her whole pursuit, you know, we'll get into it a little bit more later on in the film, but I think it's kind of like everybody trying to puff themselves up a little bit and sort of find where their place is at. Is Alana supposed to be an actress? Is Gary supposed to be an actor or a businessman? Like it's all, it all kind of evolves throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to jump into that scene you were describing, right? It's the, it's the next scene after they go to that dinner. They she he needs her as a as her uh, he needs her as a chaperone on on this trip to New York where he puts on this performance. And what I think is so interesting about the performance is you get the sense that there's like he performs with a lot of younger kids, and there's this like dynamic where there's a lot of smaller younger children, and he's playing. I think it's him and a couple of other mm-hmm. of the actors are these like older you know children, like yeah. these I guess you know fifteen. I'm still calling him a child, but he's a little bit older. And I think what that does for Alana's character is seeing him that way. Of course, there's the high of seeing him like as this exciting actor generating a lot of laughter. You can see her right. smiling when she sees that, but it also casts him as a sort of older, more mature chaperone figure to these younger children. So in the context of the school where he's like surrounded by all these children and she's in that kind of older position, Mm -hmm. she's like, this is like a young kid. And I want to also point out that in the beginning, when they go on this sort of, you know, date, like they don't, they're never really quite dating in the beginning of the movie and really like through the end of it, it, it never becomes more than a very close friendship. Maybe towards the end, you can argue they really, I mean, I think you do argue that they, they, finally begin like the true relationship sure but as this friendship is developing i think it's a really important scene for her early on to see him in this light of as he's sort of the the older one you know he's the older man on campus he's like that older person on the stage with these younger kids and when she sees him in this light it kind of ages him up to her to the point where she says oh maybe this person is you know very mature for his age and maybe he actually is you know, a little bit of, he still has the childish heart, you know, he still hits, right. you know, the teacher with the pillow because he, you know, just wants to kind of get at her, but he definitely seems older than, uh, than he might've in the high school or in the middle school. Ah, but what about Lance? We have not talked about Lance. Of course. Lance is the other kid, though, sort of the older kid who's like an actor as well. And, you know, very good looking guy, ostensibly older than 15 years old, who's also on this trip. And, you know, hits on Alana on the plane, you know, looks out for her while they're doing the performance and on the way back, hits on her some more. And then later on, when Gary comes back and is eating fast food with his mom, he sees Lance go out with Alana and they always exchange looks with each other. You know, Alana looking at Lance, then looking back at Gary in a way to be like, see, look what I'm doing. And 
trying to like make them jealous. And then Lance goes home with Alana. And it's at that point that we're introduced to Alana's family, her real life family, played by the other Heim sisters, Danielle and Esty, and then Moti and Donna Heim. Their characters named Moti and Donna and Danielle and Esty for simplicity's sake, I think. But it sets yep. up like a very fun sort of like Jewish family dynamic. And it's at that point that Lance is asked after the Heim sisters sing the blessing on the Shabbat candles to say the Hamotzi. Amen. Lance, are you ready for a nice dinner? Very ready. Thank right. you for having me again. Are you ready to do a barucha on the challah? Oh, wow. Thank you. Uh, however, I must respectfully refuse. I'm an atheist. You're Jewish. Well, you're certainly right. I, I was born into Judaism, but my personal path has led me to atheism. You see, I just can't believe there's a God when I see all the suffering in the world. Vietnam, you know? So, uh, with all due respect, uh, no, sir. I, I can't do the blessing, but thank you. You know, creates this tension that ultimately leads in Lance and Alana's brief affair kind of ending. I, I definitely think we need to slow down and talk about this scene because, you know, For sure. Jews on Film Podcast, this is the moment where the movie becomes, you know, very Jewish. And, you yeah. know, the, the Jewish character I was teasing before actually is Alana's character and not Gary, because I don't even think, I don't think Gary's character is supposed to be Jewish, but, no. you know, they, they put Alana who, you know, from her name alone, I think a lot of people might have realized that that's, you know, like a Hebrew word, like Alana. Yeah, so it's like a Hebrew name, but this is the scene where, you know, they sit down, they have this, you know, Sabbath, this Shabbat dinner together, and it's like, a few movies will take the time to really present that as this big moment. And this is not just a big moment, you know, as like a Jewish center centerpiece, but it's a big moment. It's it's meeting her family. It's seeing her vulnerability. It's seeing her, you know, as this it's it's framing her character as this sort of young Jewish woman who's bringing someone home to her family. And that's, you know, a big sort of Jewish idea, a big Jewish trope of, you know, marrying off your daughters at, you know, maybe putting pressure on your young daughters at like at, at, a, at a certain age to kind of bring home a, uh, a, you know, a good Jewish boy kind of thing. And and this scene really frames, I think, a lot of her character. So sure. I wanted to hear your thoughts a on, you know, the framing of this scene and how this sets up her romantic pursuit with Gary, you know, the, the mm -hmm. non-Jewish character of Gary throughout the yeah. film. And uh, and then also go on a mini rant about, you know, some of my pet peeves with this scene. I sort of didn't love that Gary didn't get a similar scene where he had to reckon with his non-Jewishness, right? I mean, Lance is a arguably a better pick for Alana. You know, he's older, he's better looking, he's got his stuff together. He was actually like starring in movies. So from like a success standpoint, he's more successful than Gary as an actor. And he's Jewish, you know, maybe he was born Jewish, but like, I think the fact that he wasn't willing to say the blessing on the challah and like insulted her dad, maybe that was like, like, really, you couldn't have just done it for my dad? Like, because otherwise think, he seems like you said the perfect candidate, you know, totally. And she calls him out on it. You know, I mean, she says, what does your penis look like? What? What does your penis look like? Like a regular penis, I guess. Is it circumcised? Yeah. Then you're a fucking Jew. I mean, she calls him out on it. It's like, you know, I, I'm curious to hear what your sort of criticisms or, or pet peeves are about this particular scene. So, I mean, everything you were just saying about like him being set up as the right character, I, I think that's really smart. And I really think that 
you know, this Jewish lens of like setting up the movie as her trying to find and not not that that's her goal necessarily the entire time. But, you know, of how does Gary fit into this, like by, by using, you know, this foil um, and like setting up this character as like, you know, the on paper, good Jewish boy. And then seeing how insulting it is to her family when he like won't reckon with his Jewishness, it really does set it up like how much does Alana really see a future with Gary versus how much is he just like, you know, this fun friend relationship thing that she's just kind of keeping around. Like, does she, is he really the kind of guy that's going to come home like with her family? And like you said, like we never actually do get a scene like that. So maybe, maybe he's not going to fit there. So all that is, is great with the scene thematically, emotionally seeing Jewish represent representation on film, you know, always a great thing. I love it. But, but <laughs> I could be wrong about this and maybe I'm just not aware but the tune that they sang for the for the blessing that they make on uh, like on the candles or on like a, and I think it's kiddish like on the wine like during the meal is very recognizably the tune that I know a lot of Jewish people use for Hanukkah for yep. the night of Hanukkah when you're saying mm -hmm. when you're lighting on the candles and yep. I will admit that it's possible that there are traditions that use that tune also on Friday night but at least in my familiarity I have never ever heard that. And it feels to me like the filmmakers knew what they were doing and just decided a regular, you know, Friday night, like prayer, like that's not so cinematic. Let's do the one with a really good tune. Like, yeah, we'll take the one from Hanukkah and like no one's really going to notice. They're just going to hear a good tune and think like this sounds nice. And I noticed I noticed. And again, I could be wrong. It's possible that people have used this. But if it is what I think it is, I'm a little bit disappointed with their uh lack of commitment to uh to accuracy, to Jewish accuracy, the way that I uh I've come to expect from some of the movies that have really delivered. I mean, to quote the most recent holiday that came up, Passover, if they would have shown a film with Jews starring Jewish actresses, Dayenu, it would have been enough. If they would have shown a Shabbat dinner scene, it would have been enough, Dayenu. If they would have shown a Jewish dinner scene and they said the blessing on the candles, it would have been enough, Dayenu, for me. But now you're saying you're splitting hairs that they didn't use the right tune and you're calling issue with it. Come you know on, as, Daniel, as, as the person I want to push who was, back, man, that's I know, like, they're singers. A, it sounded great. They're, the Heim sisters are amazing singers. Come on. You know what? As the person, Daniel, you're, you're letting me down as the person who was so upset about the Yentl, about the English and the lack of the accents. And oh, I know. come on. That's so different. I know that's. I know that's finer, but it was like, I love your like Dayenu, that would have been enough because it's like, they should have just stopped, like quit while they were ahead. It was so right. good. They were showing it. It was all there. Yeah. And then, you know what, again, I could be in the minority here, but just hearing that tune, I was like, oh, like you, you pulled me out of it a little bit. It's the same as like when people like get up to like the blessing and like they, and I don't remember exactly how they recited it here, but like they clearly just don't have like. The pronunciation right and they do like the hard ch instead of like trying the ch or something or just, did they do that in this movie i, I would need to go back and remember okay, I, I, can't, I don't, don't want to exactly sure. i don't want to criticize them without knowing that for sure. sure but it's when they do something like that and it's like ah oh, like you were so close i get you had the right idea but so this one when they threw in that tune i was just like what like where, why are we pulling that tune in there like that is like for someone who's paying attention you're just you're throwing me off here but I mean, it is a melody that people use and it's a great melody and they are singers and let's, let's allow for a little artistic license. I feel like it's so different than Yentl when like, it's a film that takes place in Eastern Europe and she's talking like she's, you know, like to quote Rebecca Finkel, friend of the pod, sound like they're from Flatbush. I think it's totally different, but I respectfully 
hear your suggestion and criticism, but I'm going to agree to disagree on that one. I'm okay to leave it at that, but just so you know, when we get back to ranking this film's Jewishness, it might it might just sneak in there. It Oof. might Oof. might etch into my final ranking, but I'm not going to spoil that anymore. Yeah, we can move on in the movie. Okay, let's move on. All right, so Alana is done with Lance. He did not say the blessing on the challah, and therefore he is out on the curb. But that doesn't stop Alana from seeking out people in her world in the valley to to find someone to be with. She later tries out and auditions for, you know, some acting parts. Gary introduces her to an agent and the agent says some real weird stuff, man. This is another scene when like Judaism is sort of, there weren't too many of these scenes, but this is a scene where it's sort of Jewishness is sort of front and center in the film. You know, all the, the whole time Gary being the hustler that he is tells Alana, just say yes to everything. Just say yes to everything and you'll, They'll book you for a part. And so the agent says, you know, do you ride horses? Yes. Do you fence? Yes. Do you play soccer? Yes. You And what languages do you speak? Hebrew. Hebrew. <laughs> and then she says, Portuguese? Yes. In, you know, all these other things. Would you take off your top? Yes. And then Gary looks at her. You're taking off your top? You know, he, he gives her crap for that later. But I think unprompted, the agent just looks at her and says, Gary tells me that you've been studying at Every Woman's Village with Milton Farmer. Yes. I love his work with young actors. He is a miracle worker. <laughs> you have a warm smile, which is very powerful. And you have a very Jewish nose, <laughs> which is becoming very fashionable. I'm getting a lot more requests for Jewish girls. And she really takes it in stride. And I want to give her credit for that. I think the Jewish nose, you know, it came up a lot with Streisand when she was acting and, you know, very famously did not, you know, alter her nose. Star of previously discussed film Dirty Dancing, you know, Jennifer Grey famously also altered her nose after she did Dirty Dancing because a lot of people told her that she had a Jewish nose and that really you know, affected her career negatively. She had like a number of surgeries afterwards and she wrote about it in her recently released autobiography. So the whole Jewish nose thing, let's pause on that for a minute and talk about that. That is like, you know, one of the most Jewish, you know, caricatures, tropes, like, you know, very, it could be a very harmful negative stereotype, but it's certainly something that's, you know, very present. A lot of Jewish actors, comedians will, will point attention, you know, will call attention to their sort of Jewish features. And there's, there's a lot of Jewishness in this film. Like a lot of our films we discuss here, I'm more and more convinced of its Jewishness as we go through. But, you know, as this character is like, you know, trying to make it into break it into Hollywood, like that is a big thing that like, like you were saying with the Streisand, which I love the Barbara Streisand stuff because this movie has plenty of it and we're going to get to her later. But I think there's a clear analog to that because it's like she wants this. She has Alana's character has all these like, you know, these these dreams of like making it. She wants to she's kind of like feeding off of Gary's you know entrepreneurial and ambitious spirit. And she's totally, you know. Yeah. And she's like making these like, you know, making something of her career. And this is kind of the first path she goes down and she's like, maybe I'll be a movie star. And, you know, we see a lot of like the road bumps that get in the way, but it seems like it's, it's almost, you know, like from the beginning, it's kind of like doomed in some ways because I think she has this very uniquely Jewish feature, this critical, you know, Jewish knows that, you know, this casting director after all of like the positive, like, like after like, Oh wow, you do all this, this is great. Like, you know, it's a lot of like upward momentum and it's like, 
but you have this Jewish nose. And remind me, does she say like that could be like a good thing or she's like, that could be interesting? No, that that's my wishful thinking. I think her only criticism was basically after Alana says no to taking off her top in movies, the casting director was saying, you know, you could lose that on a lot of work. That was her really her only feedback, which is kind of like, I mean, she pointed out her Jewish nose, I think, twice in the scene and then also mocked Alana when she said that she knew Krav Maga. And the agent said, do you mean, what did you say? Quick draw Maga? And that's a, uh, for those who are not aware, that is a Hanna-Barbera cartoon character. But I thought that was something fun to call out because, you know, I think the awareness of Jewishness now in popular culture is much greater than it was in the 70s, at least in Hollywood, where before... You know, being Jewish was sort of something that maybe you just kind of do on your own time and you don't talk about it. Now it's like much more mainstream as a lot more cultures are, you know, becoming more mainstream and more, you know, they're doing Pixar films about this or they're showing up on TV there or indie films or all that kind of stuff. And I think it's great. You know, hopefully casting directors are not doing that kind of stuff anymore, but I'm not really sure because I'm not doing auditions and stuff like that. But anyway, you know, what you were saying before about Alana sort of trying out different paths, you know, as Gary who's a very confident person sort of progresses with his courtship of Alana, who is still at, up until this point has not really given him any sort of indication that she's interested in pursuing him. He goes to a wig shop, he discovers a waterbed and sits in it. And then the next scene, he's now like hawking waterbeds professionally with his band of characters, like his you know, 14, 15 year old friends and Alana sort of tags along. And she, like you said, Harry, she's swept up in the enthusiasm and the excitement of it. They're calling people on the phone and they're selling tons and tons of waterbeds. And it sort of reminded me of like a scene from like Goodfellas or some sort of casino when they're just like, you know, counting out dollar bills in the back of the restaurant and the mom, you know, Gary's mom is involved. She's like a stage mom sort of, and sort of helping him in his career. You know, he's using her office space. Kind of interesting to sort of see that progress and sort of see him, you know, be sort of successful at such a young age, such an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. It's definitely that like Goodfellas montage kind of thing where it's like things are really working out. And especially as like the relationship is progressing, you know, a lot of it, you know, through Alana's character, who I think I'm going to argue is might be like the, the point of view of the film, you know, is really like the lead. But, you know, as she's watching Gary's character actually find the success that he said he was going to have, it it almost legitimizes him in her estimation. Like we spoke about Lance earlier and how he was like, he seemed like this perfect, you know, fit for her family. Like he, he seemed like this perfect, you know, this is a concept we're going to throw around a little bit throughout this podcast, but like the sort of nice Jewish boy, you know, that perfect, like good, sweet Jewish boy that Lance ultimately isn't. We, we kind of know him to be a little bit of a jerk, but at least yeah. seems like the perfect Jewish boy, you know, successful, smart, kind kind of thing that like you'd love to take home to your parents. And, you know, after Lance kind of fails that test we're kind of watching now Gary through that frame. Like, is he just like this, you know, high school dropout kind of failed actor thing that, you know, might not make it, but all of a sudden it's like, Oh, he has this actual, you know, booming waterbed in the street. He's actually pretty capable and entrepreneurial. And it's, you know, watching him kind of progress through Alana's eyes. It's like, Oh, this, this guy actually, he might be, you know, he might not just, he might not be all talk. He might actually know what he's doing. I'm skipping a scene, I think, because Gary meets up with Alana after a while at a uh, teenage fair and he's sort of selling waterbeds, trying to sell them to other teenagers, I guess. Maybe they would ask their parents for money, things like that. And then all of a sudden, kind of out of the blue, it didn't really seem to fit with the film, but he gets like put in handcuffs and taken away by the police and 
sort of abruptly and is taken to the station. I guess he's falsely identified for, for you know, being a murder sp- suspect. And it's at that point, Alana's like pounding on the window and sort of reaffirming her fondness for him. You know, she's running after the police car, chasing him down. Finally, she gets to the police station. They are able to free him and, and you know, they go out and they are walking together and, you know, they kind of catch up. But what, I don't know, what did you think of that scene? It seemed kind of weird to me. I don't know what purpose it served the film. Yeah, I, th- I think the scene is like a little bit before the acting thing. And I think it's like strikes a little bit of like passion, you know, for their love affair. Uh, because like, right. like we said, like they are, you know, it's more of a friendship for a lot of the film. And I think putting him in this like sort of shocking, you know, situation for her, I think that really like elicits this very excited response, like, you know, in a very like impassioned way of like, what's going on. She like chases after the car. Like she tries to like, you know, she runs like after him and like tries to take care of it, like tries to get him out of there. And like, I think that adds this component to their relationship. That's like very impassioned. And it like kind of maybe cast for the audience, this sense of like, Oh, they actually really like each other. And this could be something very romantic, but I'm sure for her, it, it makes her feel like, oh, wow, I really care about this person. I just kind of ran after him. And I think also seeing how Gary plays it off a little bit coolly and like he's like stressed about it, but, you know, ultimately like walks out of it. I think that also builds to his character. And then when the like the waterbed scenes and all that stuff happens afterwards, it kind of sets establishes him as someone who's, you know, wise beyond his years and is is more capable than at least he initially seems. Yeah, definitely not a nice Jewish boy, the kind of person who gets like arrested for maybe murdering someone. Yeah, yeah, not quite. Although when he's ultimately, you know, revealed as like a false suspect, maybe that kind of like says, oh, you know what, maybe not as bad as I thought. I did want to talk about the Jack Holden scene. So Sean Penn plays a director and, you know, Alana is trying out for parts and she tries out for a role. And then after her audition, she goes out you know, in a sports car with Jack Holden, they zoom around, they go to his favorite bar. He's impressing her. And then, you know, Jack Holden sees Rex Blau, kind of a Jewish sounding name, but I don't know, uh, played by the great Tom Waits. And so they're doing shtick, you know, like essentially Tom Waits asked them to get Everclear and some rags and a bunch of chairs, bar stools. And essentially what is happening is a, Poor man's recreation of an action scene from Jack Holden's earlier career. So Jack Holden is an actor based on William Holden, an actor of the era. And so tonight we have a man who needs no introduction, really. His name is Mr. Jack Holden. That's right. And if you've seen his pictures, then you know that every goddamn one of them has got Jack riding the motorcycle as if it's the only way to travel. (laughs) And for those of you who perhaps may have seen a little film called The Bridges of Tokosan. Jack and the beautiful Grace Kelly. Well, tonight, you're lucky. Because tonight, we bring Toko-san right here to Encino. On your feet now, follow me to the eighth hole. Rex Blau is lending his motorcycle to Jack Holden, who's going to jump over a fiery collection of bar stools on a golf course with Alana Kane on his back. 
with her guitar on. And, you know, while they're chatting, sort of Alana feels like she's sort of moved up a little bit, you know, graduated from Gary and then immediately realizes that she's just an accessory in this conversation. She has no idea what they're talking about. They don't engage with her at all. She's just kind of like jewelry, you know, but she does see Gary going out with a 15 ish year old person at the same place. And he wants to make sure that he's sitting with a line of sight is what he says. And they just make eyes at each other the entire time. But I, th- I just thought it's a very interesting thing. And then what happens? She rides on the back of Holden's motorcycle and kind of holding on. And almost immediately he sets off on his motorcycle and she flies off the back of it. And she completely like lands behind. He doesn't turn around. He doesn't, you know, Jack Holden continues the jump. Everyone celebrates him. No one notices. But the only person who does notice her on the ground is Gary. And he sees her lying there on the ground. He had followed like the whole, you know, the, the whole hubbub of the uh, of the bar out to see this thing happening. And he runs at full speed towards her. And then they connect and embrace in this, you know, sort of climactic moment. There's a great needle drop, you know, this wing song, this Paul McCartney song kind of plays. And there's this big magical moment where they're, you know, together at last. And it's like after, again, surveying other options. And like you said, after she has this encounter with another sort of very toxic, very masculine, very indifferent character, you kind of get this moment of embrace where it seems like, you know, maybe they really are the ones who are right for each other. Maybe all along they've really cared for each other more than anyone's else. And, you know, for this brief moment in the middle of the film, all seems kind of well with them. And they seem like they're together and on the same page. For the time being, yeah. The waterbed selling sort of somehow after there's an oil embargo and Alana uses her sort of 25-year-old grown-up brain to realize what the news is telling her. And so she tells Gary, like, you know, our business is dry because there's an oil embargo and waterbeds are made from vinyl and vinyl is made from oil. So their business is kind of going belly up. But I think the last sort of delivery they make is to producer and boyfriend of Barbara Streisand, John Peters, played by Bradley Cooper. I thought it was a great performance, but he is kind of a jerk, like a a real womanizer admits that he has a problem, but immediately sort of puts Gary in his place, talks to him about how he was late. And if he messes anything up, he's going to fuck him up and he's going to put stuff in his, he's going to do all sorts of things to him and sort of immediately, you know, you're not a man. I'm a man. I'm going to drive away in my Ferrari because I have gas in my tank and I'm going to get out of here. And that's kind of a funny scene. I, I feel like that whole set piece is like very bizarre and weird, but it also is very much like P.T. Anderson, it reminded me of the scene in Boogie Nights where they're at uh, like a drug dealer's house to get drugs and there's someone like throwing firecrackers on the floor and constantly, it's just like weird sort of yeah. what's going on here. But yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on that whole scene. And then Alana's whole driving of the truck really started taking yeah. control of it. <laughs> Boy, so she did that driving in real life, by the way. She got stunt training on how to do that. It's amazing. It's impressive. So just to start on all that John Peters stuff, I mean, that I agree with you is is probably the most electric sequence of the whole film. You know, every every second that Bradley Cooper is, I, I thought he was awesome in there. And he is actually a real person, a real character, and apparently was like a big character in the San Fernando Valley. I know it's a little before your time, but I'm sure people on the streets, you know, knew to avoid John Peters. And, you know, one moment that, does like deserves to get a shout out from our podcast is where he insists that Gary pronounces his girlfriend at the time's name correctly. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. 
Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands, like the ocean, like beaches. Herbicide sand? No, like stray sand. Sand. Stray sand. Stray sand. Barbara Stray Sand. Barbara Stray Sand. You fucking with me? All right, let's get past that. Hopefully, you never fucking meet her. She'll fucking. You think I'm bad? Stray Sand. Like sand I, in the I, desert. I, yeah. Exactly. And I hope we got it right. I, I I don't know if we have to go back to our Yentl podcast and just sort of like edit, you know, insert each of those like Stray Sand, Stray Sand, you know, make yeah, sure exactly. we got it. But he is this eccentric character. I would say the way I would describe him is in terms that probably were not used in the 1970s at the time this film was taking place. But he is probably a big example of toxic masculinity. I would say this very like like you were saying, this like womanizer, this very intense, this like I'm going to scare you. Like it wasn't necessary for him to say, like, if you do anything to my house, like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to mess you up. I'm going to kill you like whatever, like probably not necessary, but he was just intense. You know, I don't want to, I don't know if this is true to the history, but probably on Coke or something at that point. And just, you know, very intense. And again, like, you know, connecting, I, I think this film, it, it's two things. It's a little bit of just like, it's this hazy, like memory of the, the San Fernando Valley. And it's kind of this, like this movie kind of bounces from these like crazy moments to quiet moments to these just like very erratic things. So in one sense, I think the film doesn't sort of ask for a sort of like narrative connective tissue. Like it, it almost wants to just be these like loose episodes that are these like hazy memory of like, you know, of, of Paul Thomas Anderson's childhood growing up in the San Fernando Valley. But, you know, even though I think that's gen gen generally the vibe of the film, I do think that a lot of these characters we meet, I really do want to insert them in the framing of the relationship between Gary and Alana and how, sure. you know, who she kind of compares him to and how she sees him. Because I think especially after seeing the character of Lance, you know, this is like the next sort of very, you know, in, like physical presence, this, this sort of like brooding male character in the film. And I think he's an example of you know, the opposite of the NGB we were talking about. Another sort of contrasting point to that, where he is this very intense, very like womanizing, like very, you know, the the NGB, the NJB, the, the nice Jewish boy we're talking about, this sort of trope is often characterized as being a little bit quiet, a little bit effeminate, you know, like a lot of Jewish stereotypes, not very confrontational. And he is literally the opposite. So, you know, in some senses, I think seeing him kind of confirms for Alana, I, I actually am with one of the good ones and Gary for all of his, you know, mistakes, he's not this. And like, I could do so much worse. And like I said, in other senses, this is just this, you know, ridiculous comical character that was definitely running around at the time. I will mention real quick that John Peters does make a move on Alana, like he's trying to drive by his Ferrari that ran out of gas coming up the hill. And so after they flood his house with a hose as sort of an F you to him because he wasn't a nice guy. Again, Gary showing off to Alana about how much of a badass he can be. They are then caught with him in the car and he's, you know, trying to get real close to her face and kind of uncomfortably kind of like. I would call it maybe sexual assault. Like that's what we would probably call I'd it. I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like un unwanted touching and kissing from him. I think that's, yeah, that's what that was. And, you know, like you said, it, it sort of reaffirms that Gary's one of the good ones. And now Alana is kind of a little burnt out, I think, you know, like a sort of, I would say it's getting to be rock bottom for her in some ways that she's hanging out with a bunch of 15 year olds running away from a crazy coked up producer driving a box truck backwards with no gas. I mean, the kids are very excited. I mean, she looks sort of beside herself that this thing has even happened. And she looks over and she sees all these 15 year old boys sort of pretending to fillet a gas 
can and like playing around and like hump each other and like because that's like the funniest thing in the world but she realizes that she's a 25 year old person and you know she really doesn't need to be doing this kind of stuff hanging out with kids so it's at that point that she reconnects with a classmate who is staffing for a city councilman uh, joel wax played by the great benny safty yeah joel wax is a real politician and i uh i looked into it a little bit and he actually is jewish he was a jewish person a real human person a real human Jewish person. Father was a Jewish immigrant from Poland who ran a grocery and a butcher shop, according to Wikipedia. And there's a bit of a surprise here, but I'm not going to spoil it. But Alana finds her purpose working here. Everything seems well. But, you know, they, they do sort of allude to Joel Wax's personal life. You know, he is interviewed by a few reporters and they ask about. Certainly you have some prospects. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, boy, have I got the girl for you. And I've uh, met some pretty magnificent women through uh, my district residence, but I'll, I'll tell you what I tell them. And that's, sorry, but my, my time is spoken for. And so you start to sense that something's a little bit different about Joel Wax. You know, Alana's sort of seeing him as sort of a very charming, charismatic leader person, but there's something up about him. So yeah, what do you, what do you think about uh, Councilman Wax? It's an interesting part of the movie where, like we said, you know, until this point, like Alana and Gary, as much as their relationship, their friendship has grown, they've never really, you know, confessed their sort of true emotions. And there's never been this kind of coming together. And this is kind of another pin in that where it feels like Alana's spending a lot of time with, you know, Mayor Wax or potential Mayor Wax. And Gary and Alana actually take some time and like they they both work on the uh, on like the mayoral campaign a little bit. And, and you know, Gary's kind of up close the same way that, you know, we had seen scenes earlier of, you know, Alana kind of looking on as Gary was with, you know, his 15 year old girlfriends, like kind of in school, there's this sense of, you know, Gary's jealousy here. And there's this brief moment where Gary actually learns about, you know, uh, like the legalization of pinball and arcade machines, like, you know, from Joel and that kind of sends him on his next endeavor, but you know, his she next really, hustle. Yeah. his next hustle. Exactly. That's another word for it. The, with the, with the discovery of the pinball, Alana actually has a very good line where she says, you're talking about pinball machines. I'm a politician. I need to get my life together. So get it together. Yeah, like I think that there's this like another kind of moving away from each other where it's almost like they've grown out of each other a little bit where Gary kind of has his next hustle and Alana for the first time really refuses to help with that one. And, you know, at the same time, Alana is like developing her own entrepreneurial spirit and she's kind of pinning it on this, you know, Joel Wax. You know, we spent the day with a great man who's really trying to make a change on how this city runs. And the only thing you fucking heard was pinball machines are about to be legal. I heard other things too. And it's almost like there are two ambitions we've been watching through the film. First of all, her professional career ambition of like, you know, being a mature adult and like creating something for herself. It seems like, and she says it in her own words. She says like, I'm doing something, you know, very serious here. And like, it's kind of, you see it playing out for her in that regards, but then also a little bit of the romantic and emotional, you know, leads that we have. And, you know, you alluded to it before, but she sees, you know, Joel Wax as this kind of potential, you know, suitor to the point that there's a scene where he calls her and he invites her out to join him for dinner. And, you know, you can see in her excitement that she thinks that maybe this is turning into, you know, maybe he is going to be a potential romantic partner for her. And, you know, just to hold up, you know, Mayor Wax, you know, compared to some of the other characters we've been talking about in this film, he's feels like the NJB, the nice Jewish boy that this mm. film has kind of been building towards. He is, you know, he's like 
he's 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 driven he's you know uh, in politics he's going towards you know something professional he's unlike you know lance he's very nice he seems very quiet almost you know effeminate in the way we were talking about as like the you know the sort of nice jewish boy and it feels like he is the character that you know this film could end with them starting their relationship alana bringing him home to their family and you know all living happy she found like the mature responsible adult she went but, but ultimately there is a twist and I know you were alluding to this, but you know, we find out at the restaurant that, that uh, Joel is actually, he's gay and he was only inviting Alana out to dinner as a sort of cover for the press so that they would see him leaving with a woman and not be led on to the fact that he was gay because, you know, as even now it, it's still, you know, a very challenged and sort of provocative, you know, thing to a lot of people, but he didn't want his mayoral campaign to be, you know, hurt by a lot of the negative impressions that a lot of people had of gay people at that time, as you know, a lot of people still do today. So it ultimately crushes a lot of her dream at once because it shatters some of the ambitions of, you know, I think her career wise, where it's like, this guy is holding this big secret and who knows what's going to happen with it. And like, maybe this isn't going to be the sparkling future that she was building for, but then obviously romantically as a gay man, he is not a, he is not the sort of nice Jewish boy that she might've been hoping to bring home to her parents. So that's kind of shattered right before her eyes. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, we're, I mean, my mind, as you're describing it, immediately contrasts the sort of two dinner scenes where she's sort of a pawn. So, Alana, in the case of Jack Holden, is sort of eye candy. And in the case of Councilman Wax, she's, I would say, she's like a beard. So, according to Wikipedia, a beard is an American slang term describing a person who is used knowingly or unknowingly as a date, romantic partner, or spouse to conceal identity or to conceal one's sexual orientation. So essentially, she's like a decoy. So that's exactly people... what's going on. So she takes home Councilman Wax's boyfriend. And, you know, she's kind of, it's, it sucks for her. It's, she can't catch a break. Like you're saying, you know, career-wise as an actress, she's trying to affirm her status as somebody who goes to dinner with a big director. She's just like arm candy. And then she goes with this councilman who thinks she thinks is going to be a bit different. And she's going to be a big player in the political scene and make a big difference. And she's eye candy. She's a beard. You know, it's, it's, it's rough going for her. And then she kind of realizes that, you know, maybe she's not meant to do either of these things right now. Maybe she's just meant to be with Gary. So after she, you know, walks home with, with Councilman Wax's boyfriend, she gives him a nice big hug. And then she kind of goes off to Gary, who's having a huge sort of pinball grand opening for fat Bernie's pinball parlor and you know his little team of of entrepreneurial kids have been handing out flyers all over the place and there's a grand opening and so tonight's the night where she runs to the pinball parlor and gary is looking for her he sees the other heim sisters they say that she's at the councilman's office they run they run this way that way that way and eventually they run to each other they embrace i think they finally they profess their love to each other they have one kiss in the film. That's it. And I believe that's where the movie ends. Yeah. And uh, I just want to jump into some of the stuff you're talking about, because I mentioned this earlier. I think that Alana is the center of the film. And I really do think that she's the perspective that we're kind of jumping into. And I've you just called attention to the fact by pointing out, you know, these sort of dinners, you know, comparing some of these dinners she goes through that. This film really is anchored by, I think, four dinners that she has because she has her initial dinner with Gary. That's kind of the first one. 
then she has her second one with Holden, you know, and that okay. obviously he, yeah, he yeah. represents like this really negative representation of a man. And then mm-hmm. she has another one with, uh, oh, sorry, I skipped one. She has the second one with Lance. Yeah. And yeah. then the third one is with Holden. And then the fourth one is with, you know, this sort of Joel Wax character. And it's like. Interesting. And I think this idea of like, who do you want to like sit down for dinner with, bring home to the family, like get to know, like settle down with. I, I think that's like the big question of the film. I, I want to see where you're going with this with. What I'm trying to say is, I think that, you know, we follow these four episodes of these four kind of frames throughout the film. And I think that's what the film is ultimately chronicling. It's her relationship with each of these men and it's what she's looking for and, you know, how she's kind of anchoring her professional, her romantic pursuits to each of these men. And, you know, when you get to the end, there's this question of, I, I think the movie is arguing in some ways, Gary is like perfect for her and is like, you know, the one she's been looking for all along, but it's also a little bit of like a reset because like, even though they find each other at the end, it doesn't change the fact that Gary is right. Is 15 years old and like, right. And like, it's, it's who she was started with in the beginning. And there's this little, like, there's this kind of cyclical of like, you know, she started with Gary. It wasn't really, you know, he was a little too young for her. It wasn't the perfect thing for her. She, you know, tried out, you know, three different kinds of people, the sort of, you know, they're like the smooth, suave, like seemingly perfect, charming boy that, ultimately like isn't you know is a little bit snarky doesn't believe in god isn't like jewish enough then you know she finds someone who's like you know like this really aggressive you know masculinity and then she finds someone who seems like the perfect kind of balance of sweet guy you know jewish like nice character and ultimately you know he's he's gay and it doesn't work for her and like like it obviously can't work and it's just like after cycling through all these different potential you know nice like men her, shuff, her shuffling back to Gary in some senses is like, yeah, it was Gary all along. He really was great. And in some senses, it's like she just hasn't really figured it out by the end. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about this film who had very different you know, responses. Either like, what a triumphant finish. I'm so happy they ended up for each other. They really bring out the best of each other. And a lot of people who were like, it's a little bit of a sad movie from her perspective. It's a little bit of a sad like. She kind of doesn't find like that, you know, maybe the perfect man that she was trying to anchor herself her career to. Maybe that doesn't exist. And, you know, maybe it's a call for independence and it's like she can love Gary and like, you know, have him out on around. But like he's not going to be her avenue out into, you know, the sort of professional stuff. And, you know, I'm I'm just throwing this stuff out here. I, I want to see your thoughts. You got to You got to save me from this rant because I don't know where to take it. But I just do think it's interesting that she has these shuffles through these relationships. And I'm not sure where she ends up afterwards, if it's so positive. You know, I just ran out of licorice pizza. So why don't we take a quick break? We'll come back. I want to tease something because I have quite possibly the biggest stretch of this episode right after we come back. And we're back. I just got my licorice pizza, Phil. I am so full right now. You have no idea. So before you were just talking about all the different people I wanted to see if I could have you join me along with this stretch. We have Lance, right? We have Jack Holden. We have Congressman Wax. And we have Gary. We have four four guys, right? And these four guys have moms, right? And the moms have four sons. So maybe after just having come off a of Passover, I feel like maybe these are the four sons you know, kind of alluding to Passover and that each one maybe either has distinct traits, you know, so in, in the Haggadah, the book that we read on Passover, there is a story of four sons. There's the wise son, there's the wicked son, there's the simple son and the, 
the son who does not even know how to ask a question. Now, I haven't really thought through this stretch so much, but like that's why I wanted to invite you along this journey to see if we could maybe map out some of these. I know who the wicked son might be, maybe like Jack Holden, you know, but I feel like each one of these people has elements of wisdom, simplicity, evilness, not even know how to ask a question. Um, I would say for me, for sure, like Gary is the wise son because who else would know to like pivot from being a child actor to selling water beds to getting into business about pinball machines. Like that takes a lot of wisdom. Maybe Councilman Wax is like the simple son. He's just kind of like vanilla, doesn't have any sort of grit to him. And then the one who doesn't really ask any questions might be Lance because he doesn't say the blessing on the, on the mozi. I like where you went with that. I was, I was going to argue maybe that's Holden because he's the one who doesn't pay attention to her. doesn't really, you know, ask but he's her anything. Evil. Doesn't even I feel like he's like the evil one because he's such a, you know, he just strikes me as kind of a, of the people, he seems like the skeeviest kind of person. He's really like the most, yeah, the most just like using her, doesn't care. And then there's also like John Peters, but I'm not really sure that he's like enough of a romantic interest that Alana's is actually interested in. So I was sort of putting him off to the side. Yeah. So maybe if there was a fifth son, they'd be like the cokehead son or the sort of <laughs> the son who like asks for peanut butter jelly sandwiches. Do you like peanut butter sandwiches? No? So that's my stretch. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that one. I mean, it's a stretch for sure, but yeah, you know, if we had Paul Thomas Anderson as a guest on this podcast, maybe oh. if we have him for a later episode, we can ask him that question. And if for you sure. had the four sons in mind, you know, the Passover, Alana, like, you know, seeing her potential, her, you know, her four sons laid out in front of her might be there. I think it might be there, but yeah, I definitely think so. I think that's it really does like legitimately fit into, I think this view of the movie that we've kind of come to where we're talking about how it's like her engaging these, you know, four different kinds of people, these four different kinds of potential, you know, mm -hmm. potential romantic partners and like, you know, just seeing different traits, you know, and how they manifest. It's like when, you know, someone was too abrasive too sort of like Russia in her face, you know, too kind of evil in her face. Like we were saying, it's like, then she goes for like the simple son or then she goes for a quieter one. And, you know, there are, there are reasons why all of them don't work and all of them weren't perfect. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's interesting, you know, pulling Gary as like, you know, the clever, the wise one, you know, the righteous one, you know, totally. I, I like, I like the way you pulled back that. I, but I do think that the same principles that we have by the four sons, you know, in the Haggadah, in the, you know, sort of book that we're reading at the, at the Passover Seder, you know, those principles of like, here are four different ways to approach different children, four different responses people have. Right. Like, I think this movie is built off a very similar structure of here are four different examples of types of men that are kind of all bad. And one game that we like to play on Jews on film is sort of like what the sequel looks like. So what does Licorice Pizza 2 look like? And maybe we're going like 10 years in the future, maybe five years, maybe even three years to when Gary's like a legal consenting adult. So Gary's <laughs> potentially like 18 years old and Alana's 28 years old. Like what happens then? Or maybe 10 years when Gary's 25 and Alana is 35. Like what's going on? I wanted to sort of pick your brain and sort of, you know, and the year also 10 years from that point would be 84 and five years would, you know, or three years would be 77. So I'm not sure if you're clued into the San Fernando Valley goings on uh, of that period, but just in general, what do you think happens in the sequel to this film? 
Well, I, I think if we launch far enough ahead, I think at one point they sort of encounter you on the street and maybe like, you know, there's a scene where like you wave to them, like you being you young Daniel living oh, in the San oh, Fernando yeah. Valley. Oh, because, sure, sure, sure. Because once you're, once you're throwing out, you know, a couple of decades later, I mean, like, I don't, I'm not going to reveal your age or anything here, but like, you, you've got to be around at some point, you know, 20, sure. 30 years after this movie, you know, 50 years, I guess that's now. What do I think happens? I don't think this relationship lasts because mm. I think... You know, like I said, there's two views of this film. There's the more cynical view of the sort of cyclical. She falls back to this sort of comfort food for the time or, right. you know, the longer view of like, maybe they really are perfect and push each other. But it's hard for me to push the latter view, especially with the age difference, which we haven't touched on too much. I know that was a very controversial point with this film, the fact that he is underage and that this would technically constitute statutory rape, their relationship, if it you know, ever really got serious. So right. I think especially with that and just where she is, it feels like, she kind of needs to be a kid for longer. That that was the sense I got from the film that mm -hmm. all of these sort of ambitions she had and all of these like attempts to kind of launch out to the world on other people's terms and other men's terms are like ultimately not where she needs to be. You know, I don't think that means that she needs Gary to do that for her because Gary's, you know, maybe too young for that. But I think it means she needs to settle in with Gary, someone who cares for her, someone who's really, you know, great for her for another couple of years. But eventually I think she's going to find that path that makes a lot more sense for her with someone who's, you know, just, I think, better for her. Though, someone that's more supportive and more, you know, possibly closer to her age, which I don't think would hurt. And um, that, that's kind of where I think this is going. They date, you know, on and off for two, three years. But right. I, don't, I think that's the extent of it. How about you? Have you thought about that at all? I think you're right. Like Gary, you know, unless he converts and says the blessing on the, the challah, I don't think it's going to last. You know, it's I important. think, you know, I think the age difference is a big one. But I do feel like when she's around him, she's like she feels her best self. You know, she has fun. They do all this exciting, fun stuff. Like he mentions to her at some point. Alana, you would still be taking pictures at my high school of children if it wasn't for me. He's positioning himself as sort of the gateway for this incredible life that she's had thus far. You know, which of the four sons or which of the four types of people does she ultimately end up with? I mean, I would hope that she ends up with a an NJB, you know, but like, you know, not like a total, total loser, but, you know, somebody who's speaks to her interests and, you know, takes care of her. It's not like a shit bag, but a nice person, Maybe who's involved with film, not necessarily a Jack Holden type, but somebody, you know, yeah. like a, ni a nice Jewish video editor. I don't know. Something <laughs> like, you know, I thought, I thought you were pitching yourself in there. I mean, no, the decades, I mean, the, the timeline, you know, we'd have I'm, to wait a couple of years. Exactly. I think you, you would have been younger than Gary. So we're really, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not pitching myself here, here just to be clear. I'd be happy to see her with somebody who's not a, a Holden type, you know, and not to be a beard for someone and, you know, of course not to be married to a shitty actor person who doesn't treat her nicely. So, you know, she's, yeah. she seems, you know, she proves herself to be a character who we want to root for not like an anti-hero or something like that. You know, sometimes there's movies where, there's a character and you ultimately are like, I don't really want to root for this person. They're not such, they don't have some, so many redeemable qualities, but she does seem like someone who, you know, we want to have, uh, end up with a nice Jewish boy in a good way. I see you're yawning and that means it's time to wrap this podcast up. I would say, let's close this thing out and let's talk about our ratings. Yeah. So now let's move over to talking about the film in terms of its ratings, you know, we talked about the film, its plot points, things like that. Now it's time to, you know, analyze it with a more 
specific Jewish lens. Shout out to our past guest, Gil Barron, who gave us an incredible suggestion for a criteria by which to measure this film. Harry, would you say this is good for the Jews, this movie? You know, I think that question is always going to be tied to how explicitly Jewish it is, which, you know, we're, we're going to get into now because, you know, a, a movie is not necessarily going to be good or bad for the Jews if it's not obviously Jewish. But I do think that this movie has Jewishness in it. I think, you know, it, it's undeniable. If you remember this movie, you remember the Sabbath dinner scene, you remember the Jewish nose comment. You, this movie is making it very obvious that it's Jews and not in our usual stretchy way where we kind of, you know, read into it like, oh, that's clearly a Jewish illusion. You know, th this movie is a Jewish. I don't know if it's a Jewish film. It's a, a film with Jewish characters. So I would say that Alana as the Jewish character in the film as being generally the the moral and just the moral center and the protagonist of the film and someone that I think, you know, both you and I left feeling like we were, the, she was the one we were most sympathetic to and she was the one we're rooting for. And I think her Jewishness wasn't portrayed, wasn't caricaturized and it wasn't made fun of, you know, that was a great Jewish scene of their family coming together and singing. Like you said, the, the Heim sisters have great voices and harmonizing the Jewish songs together. Like, that's all really good looking, you know, and the one comment, the negative comment about Jewish noses, I think is played to be like that's shocking and offensive. So I do think that this is a pretty good movie for the Jews. I think this is good for the Jews. I would feel good about, you know, wide audiences seeing this and saying, hmm, you know, that, that was a pretty good Jewish character. I was really I really cared for. Her. So, uh, Daniel, before we get into the actual uh, the Jewishness ranking, why don't you answer that question as well? Did you think this was good for the Jews? I honestly think you took the words out of my mouth. Like, I don't have anything to add to that. I feel like all of those points are solid. I think every time Judaism was brought up in the film, I think Lance's stuff about not wanting to say the blessing on the challah was played for humor. I don't think necessarily, you know, if anything, it sort of is a score for like tradition, right? Like, like Lance's excuse is just like, what his sort of atheistic position on not saying a blessing on the challah is sort of played for humor and it's mocked. So it's sort of, you know, supporting being a, 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 yeah. a, a traditional Jew, whatever that means to you in 1974. But yeah, I think you hit all the points on the head. Yeah. Okay, cool. So then let's get this uh, conversation started about its Jewishness. So Daniel, what did you think about, you know, we've spoken a little bit about the character, the cast and crew, the content, the theme. So how do those come together in this film and make it a Jewish film? Like, is this, is this a Jewish film? Is it a film that has some Jewish themes in it? What do you say about all that? It's worth calling out that the film, P.T. Anderson, not a Jewish person, but grew up in the San Fernando Valley. His wife, Maya Rudolph, is Jewish, I found out. And, you know, the film was inspired by his friend who was a child actor. His name is Gary Getzman, who went on to produce a lot of things such as... Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, That Thing You Do, Big Fat Greek Wedding, a bunch of stuff. So yeah, this is about his sort of growing up as a child actor. So sort of the inspiration for the film is tangentially, you know, someone who happens to be Jewish. The depiction of all the stuff in the film. So cast and crew, I would say is Alana is our, and the, and the Heim family, that's our sort of sole main Jewish inspiration and, and representation in the film. Content wise, the Judaism does come up, you know, as the film, as we talked about in the film, the Shabbat dinner scene, and then the Jewish nose comment, which kind of comes up briefly, and it's not really like a plot point. So I might pass on that. But the Streisand thing also mentioned, 
I would say content wise, not as much thematically, you know, I think there's a lot of stretches we could do. Like every time I saw Gary Valentine get dressed up, going to the tailor, it just reminded me of the scene from Yentl when she's getting dressed up, you know, reminded me of like trope of like a bar mitzvah suit for those not familiar, like getting fitted for a suit for your bar mitzvah when you're coming of age ceremony, when you turn 13, it's an uncomfortable situation. Sometimes you go to a tailor, sometimes you go to a Macy's or Nordstrom's, whatever. And you, you wear this like ill-fitting suit and you're 13 years old. So you're like scrawny and your sleeves are too long and things like that. And sort of Gary, you know, went to a tailor and kind of stepped it up a bit. He's got his pink shirt on with his like white suit, even though he's not Jewish. I thought that sort of resonated to me as sort of a, a Jewish sort of scene again, kind of a stretch. But yeah, I think overall, I would probably, I, I enjoyed the film a lot. I wouldn't say it was a Jewish film. So I'd probably just give it like a two, two and a half out of five in terms of how Jewish the film was. I did like the film. I want to be clear about that. But yeah, overall, I would say my rating is maybe two and a quarter out of five on the Jewish scale. How about yourself, Harry? I think you covered it pretty well with the cast and crew, the content. I think, you know, a lot of Jewishness behind the character, behind the camera, in front of the camera. There's definitely some stuff there. The content is stuff that we've gone through already. It's the, you know, it's the Sabbath dinner scene. It's the Jewish nose thing. It's just, you know, it's not throughout the film, but I definitely think it's, it's pretty pronounced in a way that, you know, you don't see in most mainstream films. I mean, this was, you know, we're recording this a couple of months after this film was nominated for uh, a bunch of Oscars. I, I think Best Picture. Uh, this past year. So, and definitely for a screenplay. So this was a, a pretty popular, you know, mainstream film that, you know, has some, some strikingly Jewish, you know, content in it, I think, but uh, thematically is what I want to focus on here, because I do think that this film has a lot of Jewish themes in it that we've kind of spoken about. And it's a lot of stuff that I've repeated, so I won't, I won't go into it too much, but just about this, you know, that this concept of this character that's kind of in her twenties, I, I think it's very familiar to a, a Jewish experience that I've, I've known personally that I've seen that I've seen up close where, you know, a young sort of a, a young Jewish woman will be, you know, in her sort of early to mid twenties kind of thing. And I think that there's a lot of pressure from, you know, sort of like Jewish world to, you know, when are you going to find, I know I've said this a thousand times, but you know, you're, you're nice Jewish boy. When are you going to find that good boy to bring home, start your family kind of thing. And that, that sense of pressure that I think is felt implicitly by her character throughout the film, as we're watching her, you know, with these different romantic pursuits and kind of rooting for some of them and rooting against others and wondering, you know, what's the direction she's going to find in her life. But I think it's made very explicit in the scene where she brings someone home to her family. And the reason that that relationship ends unlike the other ones, I mean, I, I do think Lance was a jerk and I think the audience knows that, but the real, like the explicit reason it ends is because the family, you know, kind of doesn't approve because he doesn't right. fit into the Jewish mold. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't subscribe to the, to the religion that, you know, is kind of like necessary. So because that scene featured so prominently and it's a frame that I think thematically is present throughout the film. And as we're watching her, as much as it's about her, you know, career and her ambitions, it's also a lot about her, you know, love life and the kind of pressure that, and maybe I'm reading this into from my own Jewish lens, but the pressure I think that she's feeling to kind of find someone to settle down, you know, like her siblings, like her, like, you know, for her parents kind of thing. I actually think that is a very Jewish theme. It's a Jewish a sort of theme that's carried through an otherwise, you know, romantic film. Like not every, you know, sort of film about like a young love coming of age kind of film has such this, such a strong Jewish um, theme kind of presiding over it. So I'm going to give that credit, you know, whether or not everyone kind of sees the film through that same lens, I, I do think it's there. And I think it's there enough for me to argue that it's there. So 
you know, unlike you who had a little like two out of five, two and a half out of five kind of kept it on like the less Jewish than not. I, I want to make the claim that this is a, a more Jewish than not film. I mean, it, it had a real, you know, Sabbath scene and she is like she is a Jewish character through and through. And that's kind of made reference to not just in one scene, but it's called back to throughout. So sure. I'm going to I'm going to go three out of five, you know, not okay. the strongest, most Jewish film, but I want right. to argue more Jewish than not. So three out sure. of five Jewish stars. Great. Oh, OK, I thought you were going to go crazy, like four or five stars, six stars. I did think uh, about one scene while you were talking. The Heim sisters are not only in the Shabbat scene. They sort of come in and out of the story as as Alana is consulting with her sisters about what to do. You know, her older sister works for the real estate business of the family, which is like another thing, you know, working for the family business. But she does like smoke uh, with her sister, Danielle, and, you know, gets sort of sage-like advice from her. So you could also stretch that and say that Alana is visiting like the neighborhood wise person to get sort of sage-like advice, you know, what, as one does from their older sibling, you know, what do I do about this or that or the other? And I think it's interesting because she asks Danielle, she says, you know, Do you think it's weird I hang out with Gary and his friends all the time? It is whatever you think it is. I think it's weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15-year-old friends all the time. And that's like a very Jewish response, right? Answering a question with a, with question. a question. So I might go up to two and a half now from two and a quarter. You know, I feel like uh, you've convinced me, you know, there are a lot of Jewish elements in the film. Overall, I did really enjoy it. I wanted to ask, so do you know what um, VHS tapes are, Harry? Are you familiar with that, being a young person? When I, when I was younger, we had, we had a okay. couple of VHS tapes in our home. So long ago, there used to be a... A video store called Blockbuster Video, and there's still one in Oregon, if I'm not mistaken. There is one more Blockbuster Video, but it used to be a thing before Netflix and Amazon and all the other streaming platforms that you would go to a, a video store and you would pick up a tape and you would go home and put it in your VCR and play it for the day. The question I had for you, Harry, is where do you think Licorice Pizza would be? What section do you think in the video store would this film be? You know, the, the big question is like, is this going to be in a Jewish film section? You know, if like there was like a like a, you know, a whole like shelf dedicated to Jewish films, would you throw this here? It's probably not the first place I'd throw it. You know, it might be like the second. It might be if there's not enough room in the period piece section or like the sort of 70s, like throwback, you know, next to the, like the Days and Confused kind of section or the coming of age romance section. Like that's probably where I would assign this, where I would expect to find this first. But if it's getting a little crowded there and they don't want to kind of hide it in the back, could it bleed over into the Jewish film section? Probably not. But yeah, <laughs> I think, I think maybe, I think maybe, but it's probably more coming of age romance. Right. Do you think so? Do you want to make the case that it would show up in the Jewish film section or maybe not this time? No, I'm not willing to die on that hill. I will say that it's kind of like interesting, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is one of the first and maybe only films that's like a more modern film that we've discussed on our podcast that sort of talks about Days gone by, kind of, you know, like a, a modern film looking back into a period that has gone away, you know? So I thought that was kind of interesting calling back. So I feel like maybe it would either be an independent section. I wouldn't say it's like a major release. Like, you know, the film got nominated quite a bit and P.T. Anderson is a well-known director, but, you know, he's not like a Michael Bay or a Jerry Bruckheimer kind of person, you know? He's an art direct, art film director. But yeah, so I'd probably go romantic I don't know if I would say romantic comedy, maybe independent. Would you watch this film again with some friends? Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it. I saw it with friends the first time. I'll have to find other friends to bring it with, but I'm sure I could pull that together. 
I yeah. really enjoyed it. That's good to hear. I think I would too. I want to watch it with my wife, uh, you know, sort of, and just talk to her about, you know, how cool the Valley was because she doesn't believe me. Reminisce. So, exactly. Exactly. Back in my day. Thank you, Harry, for indulging my 818 nostalgia and talking about a film. I would probably say that P.T. Anderson is my favorite director. So to be able to discuss, to mix my love of the Valley and P.T. Anderson, I really appreciate that opportunity. Always happy to indulge. Just remember you owe me one. Next time we find, you know, it's probably not going to be PTA, but another director who grew up in the 201 out in Bergen County, Englewood, New Jersey. When that, when that time comes, comes along, we, uh, I'll make sure to have you on the podcast and hopefully the film will be as Jewish as this one. Thanks as always for tuning in. Have a good one. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Daniel Zana and Harry Ottensaucer. Daniel Zana edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.